Our second reading, you can find it somewhere between 962 and 964 in the Pew Bibles. It's from Matthew 5 and 6 and includes the Lord's Prayer. Typically, we all say the Lord's Prayer together. Today, just listen and focus on the message of the prayer. Okay, first, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Next, Matthew 6, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, while I was attempting to prepare this message... Beth Ann asked me what my topic was. Grace, I said. She replied, that's a big topic. And I thought to myself with a sigh of desperation, no kidding. At that time, I'd been thinking about this big topic for a few weeks. After all, Advent and Christmas is all about grace. And when I volunteered to speak, I knew immediately grace was to be the topic. I even had a pretty good idea of an outline for the message. At least I thought I did. I started reading, making notes, and mulling. One night, as I lay in bed, I began thinking through how to structure the message. All the pieces seemed to come together. I was pretty confident that I had a plan and went to sleep. You may be able to guess where this is going. The next day, when I finally got time to sit down and start writing, poof. All those pieces came apart and evaporated. Well, maybe not totally poof. I mean, the general ideas were still rattling around in my head and heart. But as happens sometimes in the process of writing, getting those things in my head to appear on the page, or rather the computer screen, just wouldn't happen. At least not in any cohesive way. I had an outline. I had ideas. But I just couldn't make it all coalesce into whatever it was that God wanted to communicate through me. After all, that's what preaching is. Even when it's what this is supposed to be, a brief devotional thought, when you stand up here, well, as Peter puts it, you're an oracle of God. Now that's a little scary, which may have fed into my sermon block. Now the context for that is in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, where Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
Even this cautionary encouragement mentions grace, which is what I'm supposed to be talking to you about. Okay. As I mentioned, I had an outline in my head early on. It started with five or six points, got trimmed to four, and finally I landed on three basic points. Here they are. One, grace is a stupendously marvelous thing. Two, if grace is working in us, it should show. And three, all we covet about grace for ourselves, we must freely extend to others. Now, I mean, that's all pretty obvious, right? I'm sure everyone here agrees with these points. So how hard should it be to flesh them out? I thought about opening with a few facts about the word grace, like how in the New Testament, the original Greek for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And that charis actually appears about 159 times in the New Testament. Now, by the way, many passages are about grace, even though the word grace is not used. Practically the entire Bible is about grace, even the book of James. Anyway, charis when not translated as grace, is usually translated as favor or pleasure or some version of thanks or thankful. A more expanded definition of for grace is that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindness, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. So says Strong's Concordance. A simpler definition, and one you're probably most familiar with, is that grace is the unmerited favor of God. But I think you get the idea. Now, I also thought it would be important to really punch up how truly marvelous grace is, redeeming us from sin and making us new creations. You know, like in the hymn where it says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds all our sin and guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I need this grace. Now, I can't speak for you, but David speaks for me in Psalm 51.3 where he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. A quirk of being an introvert is that memories of decades-old failures can pop up out of nowhere anytime feeling very present and make us cringe. As a result, I covet all the grace I can get. I love Micah 7.19 that declares, God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Or how about Psalm 103? You could call it the grace chapter that goes into wonderful detail about how God forgives all our iniquities, crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, is gracious, slow to anger, does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. My favorite part declares as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I don't know about you, but having my sins removed as far as the east is from the west is sounds like a really good deal. But then there's Isaiah 43 that goes further when God declares, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I mean, talk about something going poof. All this is done by grace. 
Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Bring it on and save a wretch like me. So that's more or less what I had in mind to try to get across how stupendously marvelous grace is. The second point of my cut-down outline is, if grace is working in us, it should show. What I think I had in mind was looking at the characteristics, impacts, effects, and results of grace. And here's where I think the subject just blew up bigger than I could wrangle it. I mean, seriously, pull out your concordance or go to any of the online Bible sites. I like BibleGateway.com and search on grace. Depending on the version of the Bible you choose, you'll get around 130 to 150 or so results. And in just reading these verses, you'll begin to see the magnitude of the work of grace in our lives. Now, by the way, Dan and others will be taking us on a deep dive in Romans throughout the new year. And a big theme with Paul involves grace. It'll be coming around again next year. Okay, so a handful of subpoints under, if grace is working in us, it should show, is that the grace of God, when it's being effective in us, justifies us, redeems us from sin, fuels gifts, transforms our thinking, reforms our behavior, recenters our motivations, heals our emotions, empowers our love. Essentially, it does the yeoman's work of undoing the horrendous damage of sin and making us all into what God has intended for us to be, day by day and moment by moment. This is the oddity of grace. It's like grace is a solid and a gas and a liquid all at the same time. Whatever we need, God provides the grace that is sufficient. Grace is the Swiss army knife of faith. This is a big, big deal. Now, coupled with this is another subpoint, which overlaps with the first main point. Something to the effect that for all this good stuff to happen, grace first gets us out of jail free. It removes the shackles of sin. It ends our slavery to sin. It lifts the crushing weight of condemnation from our lives. Grace takes us from a place of closed-in, suffocating bondage and sets us out into the open air and sunshine. Grace gives us room and nourishment to grow in grace. Now, I knew this was important and struggled with how to convey it, but I thought maybe something like this. Being weighed down by the condemnation of sin perhaps is like being locked inside a dark cell. You have nothing, no tools or supplies, yet you're expected to, let's say, bake a cake. You don't even have an oven or fire. Yet every hour, someone opens a little window on the door of your cell, sticks in their ugly face, and starts chiding you for not baking. They call you all sorts of belittling names. They mock you, shame you, lay on the accusations and condemnations big time. You feel small, weak, useless, powerless. But then, grace takes you out of the cell, puts you into the most gloriously equipped and stocked kitchen you've ever seen. There are cookbooks, supplies galore, open windows, perfect lighting, a modern oven, and even helpers, also known as ministering angels. Everything you need to succeed at baking is freely and generously supplied, regular and gluten-free. Now... That we're in the kitchen of grace, we ought to be baking grace cakes to give away. 
The work of grace in us needs to be visible and productive. I think maybe Colossians 1, 9 through 14 captures this at least in part. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the work of grace. So, those are the first two points I wanted to make. That grace is a stupendously marvelous thing, and if grace is working in us, it should show. The third point is, all we covet about grace for ourselves, we must freely extend to others. Now, I think some of what was fueling this thought is my own failure to show grace to others. Especially people who have, as the country western songs put it, done me wrong. I've been done wrong a few times in my life. Some of those wrongs really, really hurt. At least one hurt has hurt hard for decades, and there's no end in sight. Yet, I'm supposed to extend grace to the wrongdoers. It's not easy, and I'm not always gracious in my actions, words, or thoughts toward them. Now, another factor prompting this point are the really horrible posts I see way too often on social media, and many posted by Christians that communicate the idea that toxic people are expendable. We should ignore them, shun them, toss them aside. But it seems anyone who annoys us in any way can be labeled as toxic. That's a pretty low bar to view someone as disposable. In fact, a rather extreme post I came across recently lists eight toxic people you should get rid of. It declares that if a person spreads negativity, criticizes, wastes your time, is jealous, plays the victim, doesn't care about you, is self-centered, or keeps disappointing you, you need to get rid of them. Now be honest with me. If being tagged with just one of these eight characteristics makes a person toxic, then I am. And frankly, so are you. I mean, who among us has never ever disappointed someone. And when it comes to being self-centered, another term for selfish, I'll admit I'm really quite skilled. It sort of comes natural for most of us. Posts like these are totally graceless. They are anti-grace and they are heartbreaking. Now, there may certainly be times when we need to step away from certain people, and grace does include accountability. But our first instinct should not be shunning or disposal, especially when the issues are merely annoyances. Rather, it should be seeking to come alongside in grace. And when there is repentance, we should be like the father of the prodigal son, expectantly longing and looking for the opportunity to extend grace and restoration. One of the functions of grace is to protect both offender and offendee. Grace makes room for accountability, repentance, and restoration to happen. Grace keeps the door open. 
Now, instead of posting or agreeing with these kinds of messages, instead of too easily and almost joyfully denying grace to others, we should be over the moon abundantly grateful that God doesn't view us like this. If he did, we would have zero hope of heaven. We'd all be doomed. We need to take to heart that at least one of our grace-fed superpowers as Christians is supposed to be the ability to spread grace to others as freely as we are receiving it. Yes, as a Christian, you have access to superpowers, or rather supernatural powers. All the good stuff about grace that we covet feverishly for ourselves, we must share with others. It's really not an option. R.C. Sproul wrote, the more we understand how kind God has been to us and the more we are overcome by his mercy, the more we are inclined to love him and to serve him. Now, I contend that an excellent way to understand and more fully appreciate how kind God has been to us is through the very hard work of ministering grace to others. Now, as I mentioned, there are a handful of people in my life, when they come to mind, my first instinct is to wish them, shall we say, not good things. What stops me is looking in the mirror and admitting to myself that there have been times I've been the one doing the hurting and that ultimately all my sinning is against, has really been against God. In other words, when it's hard for us to extend grace to someone else, We should think about what God has gone through and goes through to extend grace to us. Now, we all know the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Nearly every Christian wedding includes it in the ceremony or the invitation or on a candle. When we read it, we get all dewy-eyed and warm inside. Love, yes, this is it. Well, at least how we'd like it to be, especially when aimed at us. Doing it, well, that's another story, but we do our best. The Greek word agape, translated as love in this passage, is sometimes translated as charity. Oddly, the word for grace, charis, is also sometimes translated as charity. Love and grace are related. Who knew? So I thought, what if we replace love with grace in this passage? Here's what we get. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not grace, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not grace, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not grace, I gain nothing. Grace is patient and kind. Grace does not envy or boast. Grace is not arrogant or rude. Grace does not insist on its own way. Grace is not irritable or resentful. Grace does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Grace bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Grace never ends. Wow. Now, the thrust of what I want to get across is that when it comes to grace, we need to be giving as good as we're getting. We shouldn't be insisting others cut us slack while we tighten nooses for them. If we aren't being gracious with those around us, even those who have hurt us, well then, grace is not working in us. 
withholding grace from others is the same as being a bully. It demagnifies God. It tries to manipulate vengeance and bring on punishment. It's refusing to forgive, refusing to show mercy, refusing to share in God's provision, refusing to admit our own desperate dependence on grace. So, these are the three basic points I wanted to get across. Grace is a stupendously marvelous thing. If grace is working in us, it should show. And all we covet about grace for ourselves, we must freely extend to others. Now, there was a lot of other stuff that came to mind. I accumulated about 20 or 30 pages of notes. The rabbit trails, all worth chasing are legion, and they go everywhere. I mean, like this one, that the hoarding of grace for ourselves is somewhat like what the Israelites did in Exodus 16, trying to collect more than a day's worth of manna and store it. It will just turn rotten and bitter. Or how about the golden rule in Matthew 7:12? Do to others as you would have them do to you. A rule I probably break at least once a day. It's about grace. And, of course, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Which shows us every day, not just the new year, we can and should hit the reset button to start over with fresh grace for ourselves and others. And the passage in Matthew 18 about forgiving 70 times 7, which is about grace countlessly multiplied. If someone offends us and then repents, our only grace-fueled option is to forgive them, extending grace to them. Or how about this? Grace is not just passively applied to us. We need to choose to engage with grace and encourage others to continue in grace. Acts 13.43 states in part, Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with some devout Jews, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Oh, and this one's kind of fun. In Romans 12, 6, where it states having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, the Greek word for gifts in this verse is a form of charis. It's charisma. So, since everyone who comes to Jesus is gifted to serve him, none are left behind in this area. It means that, in a sense... We're all charismatics. Anyway, see my dilemma? Grace just goes on and on and on and on. But this was supposed to be a brief devotional message. Not so brief, sorry. So I should start wrapping up. Philip Holmes, the director of communications at Reformed Theological Seminary, writing on the Desiring God website, states... God is not ignorant of all the ways we've sinned against him. He knows everything we've ever done and is able to stomach it. His knowledge of who we really are will never hinder his love for us. He's even aware of the evil behind our righteous deeds. The intimacy by which the Lord knows us but is able to lovingly embrace us as his children is supernatural. God's grace is mind-blowing. Every time I think of this reality, I'm brought to tears because I serve a God whose love and grace baffles me. Yes, exactly. Me too. So, in 2018 and beyond, as grace upon grace is being lavished on us by God, may we be transformed more and more into his glorious image, and may his grace flow through us to others abundantly. 
And that's what I wanted to share. Let's pray. Father, continue to press your righteousness into us through your amazing grace. Help us to fully appreciate the priceless value of your free grace in our lives. Let your words sink deep into our hearts and minds and be transformed into grace-filled action toward all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.